Welcome to another episode of Cocktail Hour. This week, we have Jennifer Jordan. She's a professor of leadership and organizational behavior at the Institute of Management and Development. We're very excited to have her speak to us today about the changing dynamics within leadership as we enter the digital age. So sit back, relax, grab a drink, and listen to my conversation with Jennifer Jordan. So are you in Switzerland now? I am. I'm at home. <laughs> oh, good. It's technically uh, a national holiday here, but uh, I use these days to, to make calls with the U.S. <laughs> oh, wonderful. Well, thank you for joining me for this. What I typically like to do, and I think I expressed it to you, was I like to have conversations with neat people doing neat things. And I think you and what I've read about you and the leadership focus that you have and the power or the research within power and leadership, mostly with uh, our current situations within corporations and a dramatic change that we've all been experiencing, I think it's just a fantastic area to learn more about. So I thank you for joining me. So uh, I think the way that I first came across you was reading about um, the agility uh, of leadership, which I think you did with the context of a professional dancer. Yeah. So, so you read that article that came later on in the time or the series that I've done several articles on leading in the digital age. So in the main area I focus on at IMD, where I'm a professor, is leading in a time of digital disruption. And obviously, like agility, I would say less so now, but certainly like around 2016 to 2020, agility was like a huge buzz, buzzword, right? And I was hearing it tossed around a lot, but not really like a clear definition of what it meant, right? There's like agile ways of working, but those are really about the ways of working, not just like what agility means. And so the first time I had heard agility was back in the 90s when I was dancing. And that's really like the physical agility. And I saw a lot of parallels between what it meant to be a good dancer and what it means to be an agile uh, executive. And so that's where I made those parallels. But I had already written a couple of articles at that point, the one that I sent you on the seven tensions and also another one about what leadership means in a time of AI. So this was sort of, um, I waited to send that one to HBR after I, until I had published a couple of things. I wasn't sure how they would receive it, but, uh, they, uh, they received it quite, quite, quite warmly. So that was good. Wonderful. Yeah. So I think I told you, I went to the university of Virginia Darden school. Mm -hmm. So try to limit your use of HBR if you can. Okay. All right. I'll try. But actually (laughs) I I went there in 2007. I interviewed there for a job, but I didn't get it. So I've been to Darden. So we're on the same side of this. (laughs) Well, so the seven tensions uh, really perked my interest for those that haven't read it yet. The seven tensions uh, is a article that you wrote that you looked at the differences in leadership trends between uh, the industrial age and the digital age, if I'm thinking about it correct. Uh, you have expert versus learner, uh, constant versus adapter, tactician versus visionary, teller versus listener. Oh, let's see, what are the other ones? Power holder versus power sharer, inter- uh, intuitionist versus analyst, uh, perfectionist versus accelerator, and uh, what's the last one? Oh, I think that's it. So I guess, could you just go into this a little bit more, how you looked at these and what they mean for the uh, for the change in leadership that we're seeing? Yeah, sure, sure. So um, essentially, the seven tensions are 
tensions that we see leaders having to manage between the quote unquote old and new worlds, uh, or the you could say the analog and the digital worlds, in the sense that yeah, we are in a digital age, but we're not like it's not that we have fully passed over this chasm or this limit, and now we're like all living in a virtual world where everything is completely different than it was before. I think some things about leadership are different, um, such as like, for example, the use for of leaders to be able to manage big data or understand and integrate big data. I think that really is one of the more unique challenges or the fact that like more generations than ever before are working together in the same workspace. That is different than it would have been like even 40 years ago. We definitely have more generations working together. Um, but some things aren't the same, right? Like sometimes leaders still need to be power holders and be quite directive, especially in times of in times of crises. And sometimes leaders need to be quite tactical. Um, and so what we looked at is originally we were looking at what predicts leadership success in the digital age. But then we realized that, you know, the leaders that were the most successful once we started watching them in the workplace, they were indeed the most successful leaders. Um, but they were also, they were indeed the most successful leaders because they were using these digital competencies, but they were also successful because they were able to quote unquote, like tap into these, um, these more conventional competencies as well. Um, or you could say maybe traditional competencies, if you want to put it that way. It's interesting because it's not that I need to be one or the other, be it a, um, a mm -hmm. expert or a learner. But yeah. knowing when to flex back and forth between these two, is that right? Those two. Yeah, absolutely. And that's that's very true. So it's not that like it's not that you're a quantum leader, like existing both an expert and a learner always at the same time. I mean, I guess you can be that, but I it was more that these leaders were very situationally aware and they could read the situation and say, Okay, I I have the expertise that's needed now. I step in, I would be a bit more power holder, um, or, you know, this is actually where I need to learn from others. I need to be a bit more of the listener and then step back and be more of maybe the power sharer. So it is, we're, we're writing an article now uh, for another journal about sort of like the how to balance and how do you know which one is necessary? And it's a lot of emotional intelligence. So, you know, we know about empathy. When I see, for example, people around me that are maybe more anxious maybe I need to step up and be a bit more tactical because I'm being too abstract and being too visionary, or maybe I'm being too power sharing and they need someone who's more dominant. Um, but it's also emotional intelligence of reading your own emotions. Like, is this a situation that's causing you anxiety? Or are you feeling really confident? Um, and what do I do with, with those emotions? There's emotional intelligence, there's situational awareness. And those kind of, those all come together for, cueing you in or signaling in which competency is maybe more needed. And it's a bit of a trial and error, right? I think there's a lot of times when you think, oh yeah, I, I know my thing here. This is where I need to be more of the, the teller. And then you tell and that just goes completely wrong because they were hoping that you'd be more of the listener there. So I think it's also just honing your, your skills over time. And we developed a sensitivity of reading the situation with, with greater experience. A lot of, so again, Myers-Briggs was, was one of the uh, personality tests that we all had to take. And, breaks, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it, are there tests or different ways to look at a, pe a person's EQ and their ability to flex, to understand their strengths, understand their weaknesses, know how to flex between the two of them Yeah. to be a better leader? 
Yeah, I mean, there certainly are like emotional intelligence tests. So there's the mesquite that's out there that will tell you how good are you at reading emotions? How good are you reading others' emotions? The military has a lot of situational awareness tests out there um, because obviously you can imagine that soldiers, uh, for them, it's really important to be able to read situations. Um, same for many intelligence agencies. I've never tried any of those, so I don't know how good they are or what they actually what they actually look at. But certainly to measure emotional intelligence, yes. There's not really a good measure that I know of of someone's behavioral flexibility or agility, right? Like we don't actually have a measure that, yeah, that assesses people's behavioral agility to be able to move from place to place. Like there's resilience tests, but that's a bit different. That's like, can you bounce back from, from adversity? So actually we don't have a very good, and even personality tests. Like my favorite is, I'm not a big fan of the, of the MBTI, but my favorite is the, the NEO and that's essentially placing you on different um, five different dimensions of, of personality, and um, which is conscientiousness, uh, extra, uh, extroversion, uh, agreeableness, open to openness to experience, and need for stability or emotional stability. And that even doesn't really give you much indication of how behaviorally agile someone can be. And I we don't find, by the way, that it's necessarily correlated with age. So you might think, well, older people, you know what they say is like, you can't teach an old dog new tricks. We don't necessarily find that. We also find a lot of young people that are pretty um, non-agile, I, or I should say, or maybe not very good listeners. Set in their ways. So, yeah, set in their yeah. ways. So I don't necessarily think that's the case. How did you, what was your path to become a professor and find leadership, something that you wanted to research? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. By the way, are you a sailor? No, uh, no. Okay. Because I think there's a lot of agility, like in dance, I think there's a lot of agility required in sailing, right? You have to be able to read the water and be able to then react very quickly. I think the best sailors are super situationally aware, at least of the water. Um, and and I've always wanted to interview a sailor to say like, okay, what have you learned? Or a sailor, because I mean, there's many, also many amazing leaders that have sailing as their hobby. And I wonder how much they bring that into Oh, their management or vice versa. I've got yeah. somebody for you. Uh, he, oh, really? Uh, he runs, he's an investor, uh, a sailor, and now leads one of the largest pension funds in the States. And he is a fantastic person. So I'll, I'm happy to make that introduction because okay. I think. Sure. Um, he, and that'd be cool, but he should, I'm sure he's been on your on your podcast. Then. No, not yet. Uh, yeah. yet. Okay. All um, right. Um, but anyway, so I got into this. So I, I actually went to do my PhD in social psychology on the topic of wisdom. So is there um, a facet of our intelligence? Because if you look at human intelligence, it's pretty depressing for adults in the sense that it grows up until we're around 22. And then it flattens out. And then from about 50 onwards, it's just like this gradual decline to death. And I was like, that's so depressing because I was about in my early 20s then. And I was like, this is the best it gets. I don't I don't grow intellectually anymore. That's pretty horrible. And there was this, you know, this this um, idea of wisdom. And there were only at that time, this was 2000, this was 21 years ago, um, a few people researching this topic in the world. One was at Yale University and one was at the Max Planck in Berlin, who I also got to go and work with and study with. And it was this idea that is there like this expert knowledge in the fundamental pragmatics of life as it was defined that does grow as we age. 
And that to me sounded really appealing, like on an intuitive level, but I also was curious, like, what was this wisdom? Because we know not every old person is wise. Um, so like, what does grow it and, and what, what fosters wisdom? So I started out studying this and, and uh, thanks to the amazing business managers out there, we had the WorldCom and the Enron scandals quickly after I started my PhD. And I was like looking at these people thinking, okay, these are not failures of intelligence. These weren't stupid people. They were very smart. They seemed to know exactly what they were doing, but they took entire companies down. Uh, they took companies down and then themselves down with it. I mean, some of them ended up in prison. I'm like, that seems to me like a failure of wisdom. What's going on here? And um, so I started then looking at decision-making in, in business. And it was very hard to look at these decisions without bringing in an ethical component, because I think there's a strong value component in there. Do these people know what their, their North Star is? Um, did these people really have clearly defined personal priorities that maybe didn't get uh, hijacked by greed, et cetera? So from there, I started really looking at ethical decision-making and character, and which is clearly inter intertwined in wisdom. And it was hard to then look at that without looking at the effects of power, because power does have very transformative effects on people, maybe not on everybody, but on, on many people. And um, so from there, I started studying ethics and power and how they intersect. And so that's been those have been the two topics that have pretty much defined my career up until I got to IMD, where. Many managers looked at me or when I got to IMD, it's pretty much a um, eat what you kill environment. So we're, we're required to also bring in clients and well, foster client relationships and do a lot of executive programs and consulting. And they're like ethics. We don't want ethics. Like, what's, what's that? So they, they like power. So I did a lot of work on developing and managing power and all of that. But I got more questions from clients of, what does it mean to lead in a time? Like, what is leadership now? How is it different? And honestly, I didn't have a good answer for them. And so as a researcher, I also didn't see good answers from other, other people. There wasn't a lot of research saying, how is leadership now the same and how is it different? And so back in 2016, along with my colleague, Mike Wade, who I still do quite a bit of research with and teaching, we embarked on this, yeah, on this um, quest to try to answer that question of like, what really predicts leadership now? How is it different than before? But how is it also the same? Because it's not like it's completely different, but it is unique in some ways. Well, so that's it brings up a, a remembrance of a prior conversation. Uh, Julie Sunderland, who ran the uh, the venture arm of Gates Foundation, mm -hmm. and she was. Uh, talking about and she focuses on healthcare and one of her concerns is how the the tech mentality is starting to move into healthcare development mm -hmm. and tech has yeah. a fail until well, we saw it works. This with, I, with amazon right and jeff bezos and the jamie diamond thing and they were all yeah yeah okay but it was one of getting concerned that uh the tech mentality of fail until you make it doesn't really work well when you when human lives are at stake and the and it's not an eth i don't think it's an ethics idea it's one of just not seeing the uh, a different perspective or how your the implications of decisions that you can make and how they might produce very bad outcomes for individuals mm -hmm. or for society is that mm -hmm. something that you're thinking that you see is is that a concern as you start to yeah, move out of i mean i think I, I, I think it's also a question of where in the decision-making process are you looking, Joseph, right? So 
I did, um, I do a, 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 like a three minute vlog every week on LinkedIn. I post on LinkedIn and my first one was on, you know, do we really want leaders that are not afraid to fail? Because I hear this from so many companies that come to us. They're like, we, we want to hire you to make our leaders not afraid of failure. I'm like, Hmm, you know, you're a pharmaceutical company or you make airplanes. Like, I'm not sure if I'm really comfortable with that idea. I, I really am glad that your, your leaders are not comfortable with failure. And so I think it's more of like this, this experimental mindset, right? In the sense that we can't develop something new unless we have this idea that, you know, and as, a, as someone who was trained in experimental um, techniques or, or yeah, methodology, you understand that you have to, you have a hypothesis, you have to test it. And sometimes those hypotheses are borne out and sometimes they're not confirmed. And I think the question of like, which part of the process are you going with that experimental mindset when it comes to the point where we're now giving drugs to people? Like, I really hope that it's not fully experimental. And I think this is where I'm, when I look at the research, I'm a bit uncomfortable with some of the that stuff that's happening right now with the vaccine is that it seems a bit still in the experimental phase. And yet we're really rolling it out, like, non like full stop. <laughs> and so like, where and like, I think for for, for these tech startups that are in healthcare, that that experimental, not afraid to fail mindset needs to be there, but it needs to be there fairly early on in the process, not before you're now administering something where lives are at stake. And I think there, I mean, of course, any medicine, no matter how reliable it is, always has unknown or you know side effects on certain people based on their physiology or what have you. But I, I do think that mindset still needs to be there. It's just the question of when does it, when does it, become less influential um, in your decision-making, right? Well, so when you were talking about uh, your start with wisdom, I'm, I would assume it's, um, I've always liked the data turns into intelligence, turns into knowledge, turns into wisdom, mm -hmm. or that's the chain at least. Um, and I feel like a lot of tech guys are taking data to try to get intelligence which then they can maybe sell as knowledge. But mm -hmm. that wisdom component is, as you said, it, is that the one part that does require maturity or higher levels of mm -hmm. maturity to maybe govern? Yeah. I mean, I think the question from a psychologist, like there's different types of maturity, right? There's physical maturity, there's intellectual maturity, there's emotional maturity, um, let, let us call this the emotional maturity part, um, but also intellectual maturity, I suppose. But one of the biggest components or predictors, I don't want to call it predictors because it's not really predictors, but components or dimensions of wisdom is what is called relativism, is understanding that what might be right for person X is not right for person Y. What might be right for person for me is not right for another person. So can you step back and understand that there are these moderators involved in almost any decisions that it changes the outcome based on who you're dealing with or what you're dealing with? And I think that ability to think in moderators is a part of wisdom. Um, maybe that moderator's age, maybe that moderator is financial wealth, maybe that moderator is education of the other person, whatever. But to really think in that, then things get super complex because you can think about hundreds of moderators involved in any single main effect, right? And yeah. um, and so are you able to be both intellectually as well as emotionally complex enough to understand that? Um, and I, I would also say curious enough. So the research world, the psychology world knows very little, I think, still about curiosity, like what makes someone curious. 
there is a dimension of personality, as I mentioned before, called openness to experience, which is essentially that curiosity side. But like what makes somebody, because I, I often get that from companies, like our managers are just not curious enough. I mean, I think, first of all, organizations don't reward for curiosity. They reward for results, which are often maybe byproducts, but quite down the line, far down the line of curiosity. But I also think that, you know, it's very hard. I haven't seen any good models of how to make people more curious. I'm trying to do it myself. I'm definitely more of a focus in. I'm a, one of our tensions, which is not, is not in that article, and I, I'm not going to go into why, but it's the prospector versus the miner. Are you someone who likes to look at the broad picture and step away and kind of see, are you more of that hyper-aware leader? Or are you more of the, like, the miner who goes really deep? I'm definitely more of the miner. Um, but it's really hard to get someone then to step away and to be intellectually curious, which I think in your question is still, is, is also involved. So I would say it's three things, right? Emo- um, intellectual maturity, emotional maturity, and then curiosity and probably humility too. Yeah. Well, and humor, hopefully, but Mm. my, uh, my maturity level on humor is very low. Yeah, me too. (laughs) So, uh, there's another, I don't know if it's attention or if this is an aggregation of others is, uh, for a leader to be a motivational force Mm -hmm. versus a disciplinary force. Mm -hmm. Is that, knowing when to be part of the, or when to allow a higher level of freedom and then when to rein something back in. My, yeah. Well, I mean, I would, first my, of all, yeah, go ahead, please. Oh, I was going to say, uh, when I got my master's and I was doing my research, my dissertation, my professor, cause I didn't feel like he was giving me a lot of direction. And he says, well, I'm just letting you go to find, cause that's what you're supposed to do is to go and mm-hmm. find new things. Uh, but he says, there's a loose, uh, there's a noose around your neck. It's just really loose right now. Mm-hmm. And so he would rein me back in whenever he felt like I was going in a direction that was not going to be productive. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I think you said something about like knowing when to be motivational, knowing when to use punishment or to use the word punishment. Disciplinary. Disciplinary. Uh, yeah, maybe that's, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's not the right okay. Phrase, so, but, I mean, I would say that discipline is is definitely a form of, of motivation. Like, there's yeah. nothing that we know is more motivating than trying to avoid pain. Uh, or, you know, so so that actually is a, a motivator. It's not necessarily an intrinsic motivator, right? It doesn't build that intrinsic joy or that passion in people. I think it, 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 that has a lot to do with development, right? It's, I mean, when we think about children, often the way we will motivate children not to do things or sometimes to do them, right? I have a young son. It's like, oh, if you go on the potty, you get an almond. He loves almonds. Um, So you are motivating them to do a certain behavior that you desire through rewards and punishments. Or, you know, if he goes out by the pool, which he's not supposed to do when the door, when the pool is open, he gets a a reprimand by mom. Like, you know, you know, you're not supposed to go by the pool. Um, So, when we're less mature, we often will make our decisions based on rewards and punishments. And this has been documented. This is actually a moral theory. Um, later on, it, we get we are most morally motivated by um, what makes us socially included or excluded, which you could say is also a reward and a punishment, right? What, what makes mm-hmm. us accepted by the group don't have a clear direction and you haven't given them a frame and... I mean, and we would have a whole podcast on how do you know someone's ready to be empowered because I do quite a bit of work on empowerment, which is essentially sharing your power with others. But, um, you know, I, I think at that point, the rewards and punishments method is going to be very demotivating because essentially you're bringing them down to a 
lower level of development than they're at. But at mm-hmm. the same time, not everyone is developed enough to go with the the motivation, right? Of just the empowering motivation where you give them free reign. Although even when it's empowerment, you should have some kind of a, ba- of a boundary um, to, to go forward. And think about that with children, right? I mean, at some, at some level, they need those boundaries being very clear, very reward and punishment oriented. And then later on, uh, you can be a bit more. Um, yeah. I, I'd love to, if I, if you have a, just a few more minutes, the idea that I have, or the question I have is from a co- company culture, I bet you're asked a lot, how do we change our culture to be more X, Y, Z? Uh, it's not, I'm wondering if, do you find that a company can get that culture by being more geographically diverse? meaning more flexible, whatever it might be, they can find people in different geographies that fit that culture. So it's more of a U.S. versus Europe type of a question. Um, And then also, do you think there's a way that you can hire? This is one area that I was, I don't feel like it was addressed enough in business school was how do you look to hire people? Mm -hmm. How do you look for those qualities that you think will build into your culture versus hurt it? Mm-hmm. Okay. So those are, you really want me to answer that in like one minute? Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> okay. All right. So the first question, um, maybe I'll tackle the second one first is, is well, geographic diversity. I don't think you get that from geographic diversity. I think within a culture, you can, you have a pretty good normal distribution of these, of these traits. And, but that doesn't mean like within a culture, you're completely homogenous anyway. I mean, you know, as as well as anyone being an American is that America is also super diverse. So you have people from everywhere. So I don't necessarily know if geographic diversity will give you that. I I would be very surprised if that were the case. Um, And, and, and obviously that depends on what you're continue considering geographic diversity. If you're considering the U S and it's very diverse, if you're considering, I don't know, West Podunk, uh, Wyoming, or something like that with 300 people, then yeah, probably. Okay. So I think it depends on how you define those geographic boundaries. But the second one is the the hiring people for these skills. I think you're right. Like we, that still is this big black box of what do you, how do you hire people? There's certainly personality tests, which can help on certain things. Um, you can hire people based on values. There's what's known as the Hogan value survey. So it can tell people what they value. Do they have the similar values than you? Um, we know that references are a pretty poor predictor because people select references that are <laughs> going to say nice things about them. I mean, I, I think the best way you can predict, and we know this is predict someone's performance in a job is let them do that job for a little while. Um, so, you know, I'm a big proponent of things like internships or, in Europe, we have like the trial period of a year because after that, it's really hard to hire people. But these kind of things, I mean, seeing people on the job, I think is the best way to to predict how they will perform, right? Um, but otherwise, we have very, very, very poor. And I know AI and stuff is now stepping in and trying to use people's experience and then combine it with their tests on all these psychometrics to look at this. But I think it's quite hard still. Well, that was great. Thank you so much, Jennifer, for your time today. It was great to have you on and to learn more about uh, the changing dynamics within leadership. You're welcome. And um, thanks for asking me on. Best of luck, Joseph.